All right, we are live, ladies and gentlemen. The climate czar, John Kerry, blames agriculture for a considerable amount of global carbon dioxide emissions. These comments continue a trend of attacks by climate alarmists on the world's food producing industry. So how do people like John Kerry expect to uh, feed the population in a world where agriculture is being undermined by climate efforts? Don't worry about that, everyone. The World Economic Forum, the greatest advocates of the Great Reset, they have a plan for that. Also, there is an ongoing debate raging in Washington over the debt ceiling. We're going to be talking about this and more in episode 399 of the In the Tank podcast. Welcome to the In the Tank podcast. As always, I'm your host, Donald Kendall. Joining me today, I've got Jim Lakely, VP of the Heartland Institute. How are you doing today? Good, sir. Muted himself. Unbelievable. Ooh, there we go. See? See? Well, you know, our, our producer extraordinaire, Andy, is uh, actually in a plane at about 35,000 feet by now. And he was actually going to try to use the plane Wi-Fi to come in and produce. And so uh, I've already made one mistake as I'm trying to half produce it while you half produce it, Donnie. So uh, thankfully, we have a lot of great topics today that will distract from any mistakes. <laughs> That's right. Also joining us, we've got Chris Talgo, Editorial Director here at the Heartland Institute. How are you doing today, good sir? Doing well, and I want to wish everybody a happy Memorial Day weekend. And this is just the beginning of summer, so go and make this your best summer ever, because that's what I tell myself every single Memorial Day weekend. But I'm really going to do it this time, I swear. <laughs> the it's summer, like the of, summer George. of George. Yes. <laughs> right. We yes. talked about but that. But I will not be eating a big block of cheese, I promise. <laughs> and watching Home Alone back-to-back -back in Jerry's no. apartment. No. Audio-only listeners that are catching this show on a Friday or later, you can join us a day earlier on Thursdays at noon, where we are live streaming this on Facebook and YouTube and Twitter and Rumble, and you can join the conversation, throw your comments and questions in the chat. Maybe we'll show your comment on the screen. Maybe we'll address your questions on the fly. Also, there is a super chat function that is enabled, so if you want to support the show that way, it's a great way to do so, while also guaranteeing that we read your comment or question with a little asterisk at the end there. Also, if you are listening to this, you can help us out by leaving us a review on iTunes. It'd be greatly appreciated. And for those that are watching on YouTube, you can help us out as well by just doing a couple of things that only cost you a couple of seconds, no pennies at all. That is hitting the like button, sharing this content, subscribing if you haven't already, or just leaving a comment under the video helps break through those big tech algorithms to prevent content like this from being shown to more people. But gentlemen, there is a lot to talk about, but... The, uh, the thing in the political sphere, and the only reason I really care about this, this topic, and that is Ron DeSantis officially throwing his hat in the ring for uh, the Republican nominee for president of the United States, is because I think that Jim and I and probably Chris and Justin and maybe a few others at the Heartland Institute are going to do our 
not annual, whatever. Uh, every time there's an election, death pool for the presidential candidates. So I think this is going to be a good one, considering that we've already got what, like six or seven candidates in place. So once we get a bunch more established, I think we will do the draft and maybe we'll do the draft at an end of one of these episodes. I don't know. I think that might be fun. But uh, yeah. So when, when did he announce? Was it yesterday? Yesterday evening? Yesterday. Via Twitter? Did a did like a live Twitter thing or something like that? Oh, look, see, Jim's already well prepared. Well prepared, well prepared. there. That's a great, that's a great <laughs> picture of Chris Christie, Jim. But yeah, that's he, very, you like that? Very flattering picture of Mr. Christie. Is he running? Yeah, not well, offici- I, not officially, but probably. I, I, put, I, I, heard, put, I heard Mike Pompeo said that he's out. Oh, well, yeah. Well, I'll just have to. That's uh, too bad because I like the little smirk on his face as he's looking at Trump there in the uh, the thing. So you know, you know, I'm trying to have fun with this, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I couldn't resist uh, that infamous picture of Chris Christie uh, lounging on the beach in New Jersey. I, I, maybe it was during COVID or something. I don't know, but. Uh, yeah, I, well, I shouldn't be. I guess I shouldn't be so cruel. I, I wasn't that way for everybody else. But uh, I like the serious looking Mike Pence pointing like this. That's very much uh, that's that's kind of my personality, although I'm not a big Pence fan. But, you know, uh, we're going to have uh, we're going to have fun with this. So I guess we should probably start the draft, uh, Donnie, sometime soonish. I mean, I don't know how many people are going to get in the ring, I guess. Well, I, we have to figure out when the first Republican primary is, and I guess just draft, you know, a week or two before that. So it'll be fun. Right. It'll be something we could update here on the show as we move along through the yeah, primary exactly. season. Yeah, I, well, Ron DeSantis officially throwing his hat in the ring was probably the least surprising thing. I think anyone that's paid remotely close attention to any of this stuff uh, expected him to, to do it at some point. Now, doing it... Uh, like on a Twitter live or what is it? Twitter spaces or something. Twitter spaces. Yes. I, I guess that was a little unexpected, but I don't know. I, I really don't have too much to say about this. So comments, concerns, remarks. What do, what do you got, Chris? Uh, do you want me to comment on the Twitter spaces thing or just him throwing his head in the ring in general? Anything you want. All right. Well, I mean, I watched his 40 minute interview with Trey Gowdy last night on Fox and I was super impressed by DeSantis's um, you know, his, his agenda, why he's running. Uh, I think that he's going to be a really, you know, uh, good candidate. And I am looking forward to a, you know, to a good primary season. This is healthy. It's healthy for the Republican party to have a bunch of candidates to get up there and discuss these issues and to have a robust debate. So, you know, I know that the democratic party is not going to be doing that because, they are, you know, just going to put Joe Biden, you know, up there and they're going to not allow him to debate uh, RFK or some of the other <clears throat> uh, people who have uh, said that they will try to run on the. Uh, what? On the- Marianne Williamson's not getting any stage time? No, unfortunately. I mean, oh. she's a pretty you know, smart lady. But uh, in, in general, I, I, you know, I think that we're in for a really good primary season and, you know, uh, Donald Trump is leading the polls right now, but it seems that now that DeSantis has announced, he is going to start, you know, caving into that lead and, you know, we'll see what happens. All right. Well, I, I, th- I thought, it was, yeah, well, I mean, I want to play, we got some clips here to play. We're going to talk about DeSantis that uh, I, I gathered this morning, but the significance of doing it on Twitter spaces, I think is, is amazing. I mean, it, it's changing the media. So, um, you know, Ronald Reagan, you guys are too young. To remember Ronald Reagan, but uh, you know they called Ronald Reagan the great communicator, mm. and to the chagrin of back even then the biased liberal media that hated Ronald Reagan and thought of him as a joke, uh, 
could not deny that his special talent was speaking past the media directly to the American people. That's what they always attributed his political success to, was that he uh, went over the heads of the media and spoke directly to Americans. And Twitter, especially well, in the social media age, but especially Twitter, is uh, is that kind of an avenue for different candidates. Uh, since Trump has his own truth social, which nobody is really on, um, and to be honest, I think only 8% of Americans are what you would even call active on Twitter. So it's still a very um, small minority. But, you know, Elon Musk dedicated, you know, he bought Twitter for what was it again, $43 billion or something like that. I know it was 40 something billion. Um, and he did that because of his dedication to protecting free speech in this country. Um, and for Ron DeSantis to go on. Twitter Spaces, which is a brand new um, addition to Twitter, um, the media was going crazy that it got it was buggy in the beginning. That so many people wanted to listen on via Elon Musk's own Twitter account that it broke it, <laughs> so they had to go to another guy's account and start it over again. Look, we we produce this live podcast every week. We've done it now for years. Technical problems are part of the part of the game. That's just the way it goes. And the idea that voters are going to be upset. That uh, you know, Ron DeSantis' announcement was was a little glitchy in the beginning is is absurd. But that's actually what MSNBC and the other um, oh, mental sure. mental patients in the liberal media are are actually going with. You know, uh, whatever they can. <laughs> if do. he if he can't run a Twitter Spaces uh, uh, live stream, how is he going to run a country? Yeah, I could just imagine yeah. what they're saying. Well, but I I want to play. But I let's just get right into it. I want to play a clip. Uh, I I listened to the to his announcement on Twitter spaces, not all of it, but like the first uh, half an hour or so he was on for about an hour and 10 minutes. And uh, there was a part of the, of the discussion, right. As right. As Ron DeSantis was, was ending his opening statement announcing again, I'm running for president of the United States. Most presidents, they hold a press conference or something and make a big announcement in front of a friendly crowd and all that stuff. He's going to social media. He's going to Twitter, um, which says a couple things. One, Twitter is a safe space for non-leftists now, and that really pisses off the mainstream media and the left. And it's it's emphasizing that free speech is important in this country. I'm going to play this clip. It's about two minutes. It's Ron DeSantis talking about that very issue on how the importance of being able to say what you want. Um, to boil it down, to risk even being wrong. It's okay to be wrong. There's no such thing as mis- and disinformation. Uh, so let me play this clip. And uh, the way Elon Musk wraps it up is actually pretty uh, pretty important, I think. There was a concerted effort to try to stifle dissent. There was an official narrative about lockdowns, about closing schools, about forced masking, about all these different things that we had to navigate during COVID. Uh, and it was an orthodoxy being enforced by the major tech platforms in conjunction with the federal government. And if we can't have an honest debate in a free country about uh, issues that affect hundreds of millions of people, like lockdowns, then what good is the First Amendment at that point? You should not be taking down articles that criticize uh, those draconian policies, and yet that's exactly what happened. So it occurred to me that if that had continued, uh, I think free speech in this, in this country uh, was on its way out the door. You recognize that uh, you can't have a free society uh, unless we have the freedom to debate the most important issues that are affecting our civilization. That did not happen during COVID. The truth was uh, censored repeatedly. And now that Twitter is in the hands of, of, of a free speech advocate, uh, that would not be able to happen again 
we cannot have a society in which government is colluding with major tech platforms to enforce an orthodoxy. Well, th thank you. Um, yeah, we're, I'm, we're absolutely committed to freedom of speech and level playing field um, and just a vigorous debate. And uh, hopefully uh, this can be a platform that uh, brings people of divergent uh, political views uh, to exchange those views and, and uh, perhaps some minds will be changed uh, one way or the other. The, the, the First Amendment is re irrelevant if uh, all the media and all the and, and the government are operating in lockstep. The most important amendment, the one that was most urgently added to the Constitution, um, moot if you if you cannot have uh, free and open debate. So tw Twitter was indeed expensive, uh, but free speech is priceless. Well, first and of all, the oops, oops, sorry, hit the wrong button. There, I did it again. So. Uh, <laughs> The, the importance of this is that I found it remarkable that here we are, a guy announcing his, his candidacy for the presidency, and the most important thing for him to talk about, or one of the most important things for him to talk about and for Elon Musk to agree with, is, the, is, a, is a first principles kind of issue, free speech. You don't get a lot of that talk on in most presidential campaigns. They'll be talking about the budget or social security cuts or, uh, you know, other specific, you know, micro issues. But I think it's really great. It's a great to my mind. It's a great opener for Ron DeSantis to be talking about the importance of being able to speak freely on platforms like this. He called out um, and we're going to get in trouble here, but he called out Google YouTube, which owns this platform that we're that we're streaming on, as, as well as with Rumble for suppressing um, scientists and doctors who who went against the mainstream narrative dogma on vaccines, on masking, on lockdowns, on schools. And so you, you, you don't live in a free society when you have, uh, and again, he, this is really important to DeSantis and obviously to Elon Musk, you can't have the social media companies, the, the, the huge, some of the largest corporations in the history of civilization deciding what is okay speech and what isn't, and, and, and basically having it all go in one direction, that if you go against the regime, if you go against the dominant narrative, if you criticize the press in a way that uh, reporters say they feel threatened about, you will be silenced. And Ron DeSantis, again, in his opener, talks about how they we have to break that connection between the government and these social media platforms uh, that allow people to speak because it is a, an actual violation of the First Amendment when the when the government is colluding with private enterprise to suppress your speech. I think it's a pretty important topic, and I'm glad he raised it right away. Yeah, and, and there's one comment earlier on, uh, I, I think it was from Christine, saying, be nice, Donald. And I don't know who I was being mean to. If it was to uh, perceived as I'm being mean to Trump or DeSantis, I apologize. If it was perceived that I was being mean to Jim or Chris, I don't apologize. Uh, but <laughs> I do want to see what people's thoughts are in the comment section. Because right now, I think that this is going to shape up. I mean, unless there's some type of uh, completely unexpected twist or something in the race, I think this is really going to come down to Trump versus DeSantis. So between those two, those are the only two options in the chat. I want to see just tr uh, type Trump if you if you think uh, if you're rooting for Trump in that matchup or DeSantis is if you're rooting for DeSantis. And I'm going to have the least hot take uh, ever on this podcast, which is I like both of them. So if that's the choice. I'm happy with it, right? So, you know, this is not a choice between like the outsider and then the, you know, the establishment Republican. Like this is 
Trump and DeSantis. So I, I'm happy with either choice, but I am very curious to see, you know, all, of, of all the listeners who uh, they think they, uh, you know, who who's, I guess, has the best shot at winning the thing and who they're rooting for. But uh, Chris told me just this morning that uh, that DeSantis was on Fox News last night and in an opening comment of the of the segment, he brought up my favorite topic. DeSantis brought up my favorite topic, the thing that I am so happy to hear people talk about, which is ESG. So let's play this clip uh, as well, Jim. And then, Chris, I'm going to go back to you for some comments. Mm -hmm. Virus is basically a form of cultural. There we go. Well, first of all, the woke mind virus is basically a form of cultural Marxism. At the end of the day, it's an attack on the truth. And because it's a war on truth, I think we have no uh, choice but to wage a war on woke. So how does that work for a president? Some of it may be the bully pulpit, being willing to tell the truth and not being deluded by ideology, which we see in many aspects of our society. There are probably ways, though, that you can make a difference. Certainly when you look at ESG and some of the things that's going on with major financial institutions in corporate America, we have every right to be pushing back on that. With education, you know, the federal government approves the accreditors for universities. There's a reason why universities are infested with things like DEI. Yes, yeah, some of it is they may want to do that, but some of it is the accreditors tell them you have to do that. Well, as president, I'll make sure we're approving accreditors uh, that are going to do the opposite. They're that are going to say, you know what, we're going to credit you if you are a colorblind university, if you're not trying to divide people uh, on the basis of race. So there are different tools at your disposal. It's not the same as the as a as a governor, uh, but I think you can have an impact across a wide variety of different areas. Yeah, there's another there's another clip. I don't know if we're going to play it because we still have so much else to get to. Uh, but him talking about climate change as well. And uh, uh, one of the comments that Jim shared the video with was like, it's as if people from the Heartland Institute wrote those comments. So really enjoyed the comments about climate change. Very much enjoyed the comments about ESG. Uh, Chris, thoughts on this? And then I want to get to our main topics. So uh, Ryan DeSantis said that he would focus on three main things when he first came into the office. Uh, he would, on day one, uh, seal the border. He would finally uh, end uh, the asylum process that Joe Biden has reinstated. He would go back to remain in Mexico. He said the second thing he would do is restore integrity to the institutions that have been overrun with you know, left-wing ideologues, such as the FBI, the DOJ, across the board. And then thirdly, he said that he would... Uh, regain American energy independence. I think that those are three things that the vast majority of Americans completely agree on. And I think that Ron DeSantis is very good at making, you know, articulate arguments. And I think he's very good at pushing back against the uh, arguments against what he's standing for. So, you know, he's very, I think, adept at uh, highlighting the problems with the woke ideology. And it's not an attack on woke. It's not an attack on transgenderism. It's an attack on the truth. And Ron DeSantis is a, he's, he's a truth you know bearer, and I think that that is a very good thing. I think we need that. Uh, I think in the past you know few uh, presidential elections before Donald Trump, uh, the Republican Party ran milquetoast candidates who were unwilling to step up to the plate and defend you know many of the things that the American people want him to defend. And I think that Ron DeSantis is going to do that. And I think right now I'm leaning toward Ron DeSantis. Because I think that Donald Trump has too much baggage, and I think that as soon as Trump you know, enters the White House, he'd almost be a lame duck president because everyone would know he'd only be a one-term president. And with Ron DeSantis, you could get eight years 
which would be enough time to really put these policies into place. And he said he would do a dual strategy. He would do the executive order stuff to undo a lot of the damage that Biden has done through the uh, executive order process. But he would also work with the legislature. And he cited the fact that he has worked with the Florida legislature to pass lots and lots of bills that the people of Florida wanted. So what he's saying is, hey, I have the ability to win. I have the ability to put up victories. And I think that that is something that the American people crave at this moment in time. And I think that Donald Trump did a great job during his four years, but I think that his time is up and I think that he just has too much baggage to go with him. Well, that is a lot hotter take than mine, but, uh, you know, what can you say? People are going to have opinions about this stuff. So I, I do see a bunch of comments in the chat there of uh, picking a side, picking a side. So, and I also want to urge people that like, if it does come down to these two, let's not make it a bloodbath. All right. Let's put some gloves on. When we're punching inside the tent. All right. That, that's all I want to say, but yeah, well, uh, you, you know, it's, it's a lot of the commenters here are talking about the one comment. I forget who said it's like, you know, Trump had his chance and he blew it. Um, he had his chance to drain the swamp and it didn't happen. Um, I, but I'm, I'm with you, Donnie. It's like either one is certainly preferable to the, um, uh, do, should we even call Biden president? He's, he's not, He's not. He's a puppet at best. The puppet I mean, in chief. <laughs> the puppet in chief. I mean, his his administration is being run behind the scenes by radical leftists. Um, he. I don't even think he really knows half of what he's saying half the time. He's in. He's in public. But you know, look, DeSantis is. Um, uh, he said that uh, the first he, day one, he's going to fire FBI Director Christopher Wray. Uh, Trump didn't mm -hmm. do that. Um, I'm sure if Fauci was still uh, head of. Um, uh, you know, the Center on Inf Infectious Diseases. I'm sure Ron DeSantis would say he'd fire him on day one, too. Trump had a chance to do that. He didn't do it. He gave, um, he gave, there you put on that hat. There you go, buddy. <laughs> I got to counter all this, you know, yeah. rabid pro DeSantis stuff. Well, just, Trump, you know. well, well Trump, Trump did not, did not just not fire Fauci. He gave him an award. He gave him a presidential award, uh, maybe the Presidential Medal of Freedom or some kind of, and so did, same thing with Deborah Burks. People who hated him, hated him. Deborah Burks wrote a book talking about how much she she was basically laughing and undermining Trump behind his back. And Trump gives her an award. Um, now, I'm not saying that's disqualifying for being president, but it sure doesn't give me the warm uh, the warm and fuzzies uh, about him in that regard. And but one thing I think Trump and DeSantis are, uh, you know, in lockstep on uh, definitely in, with together is on climate and energy policy. Um, sure. You know, the, one of the first things Donald Trump did, and again, our, our then president, our founding president, the Harlan Institute, Joe Bass, was invited to the Rose Garden to be present when Donald Trump announced that we were withdrawing from the, the stupid Paris Climate Accord, uh, which, of course, Biden has put us back in. Um, so, you know, you, you can't we never had a better climate realist president than Donald Trump. But uh, DeSantis is at least as equal. And I think it's I think for the to get it on the record, I think, and to segue into our next topic, which is about carrying climate and agriculture. Let's play this clip uh, because this definitely gave me the warm and fuzzies. All right. Governor, you represent a state surrounded by by, by oceans, uh, by water and, and, and have had a series of hurricanes. What is your view on climate change and, and what is the role of government um, in, in addressing it? The hurricanes are not, uh, they have not increased in number. People try to say when we had Ian that it was because of climate change. But if you look at the first 60 years uh, uh, from 1900 to 1960, we had more major hurricanes hit Florida than in the 60 mm -hmm. years since then. Uh, this is something that's a fact of life uh, in the Sunshine State. Uh, I've always rejected the politicization uh, of the weather. 
Uh, and I think what we should be doing in the United States is focusing on being energy independent, making sure we're utilizing the resources. And oh, by the way, uh, when you have market-based solutions, when you innovate, in Florida, we've seen emissions go down dramatically in the last 10 years, uh, but that's through market and innovation. That is not through mandates. And I think what Biden wants to do, he wants to take us in a direction where we're like Germany, where we don't have a reliable power grid, where prices spike. I mean, California, for example, they have a tough time keeping the lights on, and yet they want to ban the internal combustion engine. People are going to plug in, what, another 20 million EVs? How are they going to be able to support that? So we got to get real here. And we got to understand that uh, reliable energy is something that is absolutely essential for a free society. And we will make sure to deliver that as president. You know, I'm going to use that as a as a way to segue, because it's even worse uh, than he's describing. I mean, we've talked about that. We've talked about the unreliable energy. We've talked about getting rid of internal combustion engines and replacing it all with EVs and how just terrible that idea would be. But it's even worse than that. So just earlier this month, climate czar John Kerry was taking part in the Aim for Climate Summit hosted by the Department of Agriculture. During the summit, John Kerry started talking about the impact that our agricultural sector was having on the climate, saying that reaching net zero would be impossible without addressing emissions from the agricultural sector. So he said that the industry accounted for 33% of the world's total carbon emissions and said that reducing those emissions must be, quote, front and center in the fight against climate change. Uh, adding to these statements, Kerry said that we need economic, social, and policy innovation in order to scale adaptation of these technical solutions and get them into the hands of folks in the fields of small farmers on a worldwide basis. So, of course, this last statement makes it seem like they're just trying to give farmers the tools that they need to farm more sustainably and everybody and everything will just be so much better off and blah, 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 blah. But as we've talked about on this podcast numerous times, all these terrible uh, policies that are in place when it comes to agriculture and fighting climate change. Uh, we've talked about the draconian nitrogen restrictions in the Netherlands that were going to result in Dutch farms and ranches having to shut down. Fertilizer bans in places like Sri Lanka that absolutely destroyed their economy and ruined their country. Policies in Canada, the UK, the United States, where the government was going to essentially pay farmers to either retire or use their less of their land. So when John Kerry says that he wants to put agriculture front and center of the fight against climate change, forgive me if I think this is code for producing less food and producing that food more expensively. So uh, let's go to uh, let's go to Jim first on this one. Uh, so what are your thoughts on the climate czar, John Kerry's comments? Well, it's it's part and parcel of what we've talked about on this on this podcast a lot. Um, the global elites that are setting global policy based on the myth that humans are causing a climate crisis and that if we re basically reverse all of our progress and all of our prosperity, that we will be able to stop the temperature from rising another, I don't know, what would it be by now? Another eight tenths of a degree by the end of the century. And if we were able to accomplish that goal, um, life would be better. Uh, cities won't be underwater. Uh, islands won't disappear. The, the, uh, the, the polar ice caps will remain as they are. Uh, it's all 
absolute nonsense and fantasy. It's really a delusion. I mean, to, to think about all of this, even if you believed that that human activity was causing um, all of these future catastrophes that they have been predicting for literally decades since before I was born and I'm 53 years old. If, if, and if they have not, none of these have come true, yet they continue to predict these calamities in the future. And the only way to stop them is to do everything you're told and is to socialize. I mean, that's what's happening with this agriculture stuff. Um, you know, a, a free market in places like the Netherlands, farmers decide what crops are most profitable for them um, because there's a need for them in the marketplace and in, in, in humanity. And so that's what they will that's what they will plant. They will use the fertilizers and techniques that increase the yield as much as possible so that they can increase profits. I mean, anybody who has studied the Soviet Union where they socialized agriculture, it caused famines. The 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 um, uh, the famous uh, infamous, I should say, tragedy in Ukraine, where millions, tens of millions of people starved to death because master planners thought they knew how to do agriculture better than free individuals in a marketplace like we had in the West. China, the great leap forward, tens of millions of people starved to death because central planners decided on agriculture policy instead of a free market capitalist profit motive uh, agriculture system that was everywhere else in the world. And so if we continue to go down this way, if, if people actually listen to that moron, John Kerry, when he gets off his private jet and lectures <laughs> the rest of us on how we have to change our lives, but especially our agriculture to save the planet, people should actually find, while you can still get them, rotten tomatoes and throw them at his head because that's what he deserves. Rotted fruit thrown at him, rotted vegetables thrown at him for suggesting that one, human activity is causing a climate crisis, and two, that we have to basically upend and make uh, starve people to death. That's what's, that is what's going to happen. It's not going to be quite like the Great Leap Forward, where it's contained into one country, like China, or 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 you know a vindictive Stalin punishing the Ukraine by starving them to death and taking all of their grain and jailing people who try to grow food for themselves. That's where this always leads. And so you know. Right, we've seen and we, we've played on this podcast video clips of people storming the uh, the the executive mansion in Sri Lanka. And it was taken from way above, like from a drone. It looked like ants right. scurrying up there. It was it was an amazing mass of humanity that said, no, 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 no. We're, we're not we're not going to starve to death. We're going to stop this nonsense. Uh, and so, you know, podcasts like this, the work that the Heartland Institute does is to highlight these these activities and to tell you the truth about what's happening with the climate. And again, if we did everything we're told, in fact, the United States has actually reduced our CO2 emissions. If you care about that, I don't. But if you care about CO2 emissions from humans, we've reduced it by about 20 percent over the last couple of decades. China has increased theirs by 300,000 percent over the same amount of time. China will continue to do what they want. India will continue to do what they want building as many coal plants as they want, and the rest of us in the West have to suffer. That's why you know this is a cult. And a cult, you punish the non-believers, and you ignore those that are out, you know, that, that are obviously, we're not, you're never going to get China to join the climate cult because they're not insane, and they are separate from the rest of the world in many ways. But, you know, we, we, we need to disengage from the climate cult because if we did, again, everything Every unnecessary, destructive thing that they demand, it would make no difference at all. Zero in the temperature of the, of the globe, in how weather patterns work. It's all bunk, and it's all meant to punish and control you, not to save the earth.
Yeah, Donnie, you know, Donnie, Donnie, real quick, I need to say one thing. So, you know, Jim said that we should throw rotten tomatoes at John Kerry. <laughs> I think that's very interesting because John Kerry married Teresa Hines oh. of the Hines Ketchup Fortune. Oh and John gosh. Kerry is a reverse gold digger. So I just think that that is so <laughs> perfect. Throw reverse rotten tomatoes at the, at the guy who married the Hines Ketchup heiress. Yeah, so no, that's good. perfect. That is perfect. Yeah. Um, ketchup packets at him. So the the climate alarmist types usually stay in a couple of lanes, uh, lanes that they think that they, they they can win. So this includes the energy sector where they say, oh, we don't need oil and gas and coal. We could just uh, produce the same amount of energy using wind and solar. And, and perhaps we might need to conserve some energy here and there, maybe use special light bulbs, energy efficient windows, etc. Or with cars, they say we don't need gasoline powered cars. We could just produce electric cars and perhaps people will have to adjust their driving patterns. But hey, you know, people should be using more public transit anyways. But when it comes to food production, it seems like a pretty touchy subject. Occasionally, you'll have an imbecile like Kamala Harris saying that we should change the recommended dietary guidelines to discourage meat consumption. But to suggest that we should meddle in the world's food production, it just seems like a losing strategy. What do you think about this, Chris? I think the common denominator of all their climate change, you know, policies is central control. And it's about, uh, you know, getting rid of the free market as the innovation machine that has made the United States of America and the West in general, you know, the most prosperous, wealthy uh, place, you know, in, in human history. And it's just it's so sad because you would think that these people who are smart, you know, they went to college. They obviously know these things. They know that central planning does not work. They know that. Um, when the <clears throat> government, you know, tries to force feed the population into, uh, you know, taking on these these new, you know, technologies when they're not ready for prime time yet, that it's going to be a disaster. And that's why the the Ron DeSantis comment actually, you know, gives me some sense of hope because what Ron DeSantis said is, hey, they're they're all about centralizing, they're all about doing this, whether it's EV cars, whether it's you know windmills and uh, you know. Uh, solar panels or just or or are their crazy you know food stuff and what he's saying is actually the best way to do this is to just let the free market do its thing and innovate and let people tinker and let people you know just experiment with things and then eventually those things are scalable and then eventually those things they might start off you know unaffordable for the masses but eventually as we've seen time and time again whether it's with cars personal computers tv screens you know you know, uh, flying across the world, eventually they they figure out a way to make it affordable for the masses. So this is about Joe Biden and his, you know, friends in the climate change community actually making lots of money off this. Because guess what? The government is spending trillions of dollars and those trillions of dollars are going to people who are aligned with these special interest groups who are pushing this stuff. And we saw like a portion of this with Barack Obama and when he passed his 800, you know, uh, billion dollar stimulus plan, Oh, hey, guess what? A lot of that money went to, you know, friends of his at Battery 123 or, you know, those, all those other companies who then actually went bankrupt. So really, this is a this is this is just a wealth redistribution from the, you know, from the taxpayers to the already wealthy. And I'm just sick and tired of it. And the American people know that this is not going to solve a problem that doesn't even exist. Mm -hmm. So I'm just I, I'm looking forward to the day when, uh, you know, Ron DeSantis or President Trump or, or, you know, whomever is sitting with uh, Joe Biden on the debate stage, you know, come 2024 
And uh, they start to get into this and they start to really get to the core of this issue because I think the American people are beyond sick and tired of this. Yeah, just to see John Kerry get fired would be just that'd be enough for me (laughs) for a Republican to get in office. But whatever. Uh, We do get a $20 super chat from Claire. Thank you so much, Claire, for that. It's a great way to support the show. Uh, No comment there. We would have read it if you had one in there. But thank you, Claire, for supporting the show. So I brought up the Netherlands a couple of times. Let's check in on the Dutch farmer, shall we? So as a refresher, back in June of 2022, the government of the Netherlands announced plans to impose massive reductions in the country's nitrogen emissions. We're talking about upwards of 70% in some areas of the country. The plan were uh, the plans were established to remain compliant with the broader European Union agricultural mandates. This led to massive unrest amongst farmers who knew that the enhanced regulations would destroy their livelihoods, forcing many to shut down completely. Well, since that story, the then sitting prime minister, Mark Rudy, was destroyed in the most recent election. The political cost of this plan was far too great, apparently, for him to stay in office. So now the European Commission has announced a new plan, a $1.6 billion plan to buy out livestock farmers to reduce nitrogen pollution. So the European Union is going to pay $1.6 billion to the Netherlands to produce less livestock. And let me remind you, uh, the Netherlands is the second largest agricultural exporting country, second only to the United States. So this is the plan of the climate alarmists. They want fewer agricultural and livestock products uh, produced. Sure, food prices will necessarily go up. More people will necessarily go hungry. But hey, you know, we want to have a negligible impact on the climate, don't we? So, uh, Jim, I mean, (laughs) this just... It just seems like the situation in the Netherlands just gets more and more absurd. Like this, this is this is the kind of stuff that John Kerry is talking about. Am I right? You, you are right. I mean, and it's look if you want to reduce the uh, production of nitrogen, that that uh, you know, if you want to if you want to reduce that, right, you can come up with a solution to find a way to mitigate it. Now we went from. Uh, the the EU basically told the Netherlands you're going to go from 100 miles an hour to zero. Now, right now. I mean, so so there's no talk about if this is a problem, finding ways to mitigate it and continue to produce enough food for everybody. Uh, nope, we're just going to get rid of it because uh, we can we we have declared it bad, even though there hasn't really been a problem with it for the last century. Uh, you're, you're farming too much. Uh, we have too much food. And again, this goes back to uh, the WEF, the World Economic Forum and our buddy Klaus Schwab, who says you will eat the bugs. Uh, this is part of the plan to get us off of livestock as protein for the masses. Uh, John Kerry will not be eating a bug steak. He will not be uh, drinking worm smoothies. This is not <laughs> the life they will live, but they will impose that life upon the rest of us because they have the power and we do not. Uh Again, if this was a problem, let's talk about ways to mitigate it. Let's identify the problem. Let's, I don't know, have a conversation about completely upending the agricultural system of the globe. Nope, no conversation. It's banned. Gone. Get rid of it. Uh, This is insane. And if you don't think this is coming to the United States, you're not paying attention. There haven't been a lot of stories about how the federal government is 
I don't think I've seen any stories yet about how the federal government is going through the Department of Agriculture is going to restrict the number of uh, the, the amount of cattle that is raised or, you know, pig farming or any of that stuff. There hasn't been talk about that yet. But if you don't think what's happening over there in Europe is coming to the United States, you don't you're not paying attention to our leaders who are going over there and taking instructions from them and trying to bring them back home. Uh, th this is this should be very worrisome. Uh, yeah, you, we, not, we, might not be, we might not be the first people to eat the bugs, but we're going to eat them unless we turn this uh, this nonsense around. I have a new conspiracy theory. And I know you love conspiracy theories. I love them. OK, John Kerry wants us to uh, not eat meat and eat like, you know, bug meat or like fake meat or whatever, so that we douse it with Heinz ketchup. And he makes tons of money. <laughs> it's all oh, connects. To it's all ketchup. about it's, it's big ketchup. Big follow ketchup the ketchup, is, folks. Follow, Don't follow yeah. the money. Follow the ketchup. Yeah. Uh, so let me further address the uh, the last comment that I read uh, stated by John Kerry. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read it again. We need economic, social, and policy innovation in order to scale adaptation of these technical solutions and get them into the hands of folks in the fields of small farmers on a worldwide basis. So I can imagine skeptics of our point of view suggesting that we aren't giving John Kerry enough credit. Perhaps he does indeed want to find more technical solutions to, per to perhaps produce more food just with a smaller carbon footprint. Well, who do we know that is friendly with John Kerry and you know talks about new tech and, and different stuff like that on a global basis? Who, who do we know? Who do we know? Aha! The World Economic Forum, of course! So the World Economic Forum has a ton of literature on reforming the agricultural sector and to make it more inclusive and climate friendly, etc. So one of their plans is called Food Innovation Hubs. If you go to their website, you'll find a lot of boring language about determining best practices for farming and making sure those practices are disseminated to farmers around the world, perhaps building partnerships, sustainable development, blah, 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 blah. But in one section towards the bottom uh, of that, uh, the page that you got open up there, Jim, they have a paragraph describing how these food innovation hubs are supported by something called a global coordinating secretariat hosted by the World Economic Forum. So while the World Economic Forum plan suggests it wants to support local farmers, those farmers are all networked together underneath this GCS program. And guess where the center point of this GCS program is headquartered? That's right, the Netherlands. So in January of 2021, 18 months before those draconian nitrogen restrictions were unleashed on the country, the government of the Netherlands and the World Economic Forum announced the formation of the Global Coordinating Secretariat in the Netherlands. You can't make this stuff up if you tried, people. And if you did... They wouldn't believe you, but there it is right on the World Economic Forum page in the Netherlands, Global Coordinating Secretariat. And what's all downstream from that? The stuff that we were just talking about that's forcing these Dutch farmers to close their farms and their ranches. It all stems back from the stuff that John Kerry is talking about. This is all connected, everybody. So, uh, Jim, or wait, no. Am I going to Chris next? Chris, thoughts about this? Seems like the World Economic Forum has their, their fingers in every stink pie that's out there the first thing that caught my attention was the name global coordinating secretariat which sounds like it's straight out of stalin's like soviet <laughs> union five-year <laughs> plan i mean yeah that's, that's all i have to say about that
Jim, uh, thoughts on this? I mean, I, I was doing my research on this yesterday, and I was like, I can't believe it. Like, I had to triple check this. Like, <laughs> really? It's in the Netherlands? Really? Go ahead. Well, I mean, I, I don't want to repeat what I had said earlier, but central planning, the growing of food and, and, and central planning, using central planning to feed the world is the 100% speed, uh, speed lane to global uh, famine. Uh, period, because that's what history teaches us. The idea that a global coordinating secretariat can organize uh, how we grow food, where we grow food, how food is distributed better than the free market around the absolutely world. insane. Around right. the world. <laughs> around you, the world. <laughs> you wouldn't want to have a a, um, a, a, a Dutch coordinating secretariat for uh, for yeah. agriculture, let alone one for the globe. Yeah, so... <laughs> You know, the WEF is like, uh, you know, like if Klaus Schwab is a Bond villain, then the World Economic Forum is Spectre. Uh, You know, so just this idea, again, it's all centralization. It's all about power. It's not about improving. It's the opposite of improving your life. It's going to make your life more miserable. And so it has to be resisted. You have to talk to your friends and neighbors. You have to wake them up to what's actually being attempted here on a global scale. And it's, it's not just crazy. It's literally dangerous this th- these are dangerous ideas that are getting a lot um a lot more traction than they ought to if be- and it's a lot of it because i think because people are not paying attention and pushing back yeah yeah no doubt uh, it's 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 unbelievable stuff and there was one one clip that i was considering about playing but i didn't know if we would have enough time uh but considering justin's not here we we would have had enough time but uh who's the guy from shark tank the it's like the main guy he does a lot of fox news appearances mr, fox Wonder, business. mr. wonderful yeah what's kevin his name? kevin something. o'leary kevin, kevin o'leary. o'leary yeah he was on uh and he was he was on somebody's show i forget and they were asking him about john Kerry's comments and he was just saying like Man, what just like uh, uh, terrible comments is can he not read the room like this is going to play horrible in rural America and all of this in an area of the country that's like doesn't even like Biden to begin with. And now you're attacking agriculture. And I wanted to play that because I think that this that kind of underlines a point that I was making earlier that, you know, they, they probably think that they uh, can make a case for electric cars. Uh, they could probably make a case, you know, for the to the general public about uh, wind and solar. But it's just like going after food just seems like such a losing battle. Like if you want to shed uh, uh, support like that's that's the route to take. And I have a couple of pieces here um, that I put in the show notes. I don't want to get into it too deep here because I want to save some time for our last topic. But there is one article that caught my attention from The Telegraph. Uh, Europe is beginning to turn against the profits of climate alarmism. And there was one paragraph that I'll just read briefly. It says, uh, it's all moving quite quickly. Last autumn, Germany signed in... Uh, European Union target to ban the sale of internal combustion engine cars by 2035. It now opposes the idea, as does Italy, Poland, Chechnya, Chechnya, Czechia. I don't know. Chechnya. Uh, that's that's uh, not to say the green agenda is collapsing under the pressure of public scorn. It's simply being subjected to the kind of scrutiny that was never applied in the first place. How much will it cost? What will it achieve? Germany's transport minister uh, has been making a good argument. What's the point in electric cars if the power that drives them comes from burning coal? It also references the public pushback in those London ultra low emission zones that we discussed a few weeks back. 
And uh, then there was that poll that we covered, I think, two weeks ago from Gallup that showed that only 1% of, uh, of people that responded to the poll identified climate change and or pollution as the most in topic, uh, top, the most important topic in the country today. So it's just like, I don't know. It's like they're trying to lose support for their climate alarmism agenda. And it seems like they're winning. So well, maybe they got a big slap in the face of reality when Vladimir Putin, uh, you know, invaded <laughs> Ukraine and cut off Europe from, you know, natural gas. And then Nord Stream 2, you know, got blown up by apparently the Ukrainians. So maybe Germany and all these countries that thought, oh, well, we'll be OK because we'll be able to rely on Russia for, uh, you know, natural gas. And then it turns out Russia's, you know, invades Ukraine. And now, you know, the United States could have set up to the plate. We could have been exporting all the natural gas that Europe needed. But no, they were laughing at Donald Trump uh, during a big UN conference when he was saying, you know, it's not a good idea for you to be reliant upon, you know, your arch enemy for a thousand years. But they did so anyways. So remember the it's just like even with like these like small increases, like forget about 100% changing to renewable energy or like 100% cutting off all gas cars or some of these like major changes that like the Greta Thunbergs of the world are like calling for. Like just think of these like little things that have caused such uproar, right? Like the what was it in France like a few years ago, the whole yellow vest thing stemmed from like a. 13 cents increase gas tax or something like that. It was some like minimal tax or whatever uh, on gasoline. I don't blame them, but it just shows that like a minimum increase in tax caused like nationwide outrage. Or, you know, we just talked about the Dutch farmers that were like dumping manure on the steps of their capital because of some new nitrogen restriction. So it's like, do they really think that they can ramrod through some like seismic change and the and the people are just going to sit by and be like, OK, yeah, sure. Yeah, we'll eat bugs. That, that sounds good. It's, it's unbelievable know- to me. We said this a hundred times that there are polls all over the place that show that people, quote unquote, support, you know, climate change. But then when it comes to them actually putting their money where their mouth is, literally, if it's like, okay, fine, will you put an extra ten dollars, you know, a month to your electricity bills? No, I don't want to do that. So it's one of those things where, yeah, it's an abstract concept. And, you know, it's like people want to do it because they want to be liked and they want to be, you know, it's normal and it's popular to do that. But then when it really comes down to it and the rubber meets the road, no, they don't want to spend their extra money on that. So I hope that that will be a wake up, wake up call to the American people. Jim, I I do want to spend the last 10 minutes of the podcast talking about the debt ceiling debate. Uh, But do you have any final comments on this topic before we move on? Let's move on. Let's move on. All right. So Chris made me aware that there is a debate over (laughs) raising the debt limit that is still a thing. Uh, I feel like Chris has been pitching this topic for like the past couple of months now. Yes. And uh, when (laughs) most recently suggested, I was like, that's still happening. (laughs) So Chris, fill me in. What's going on? Give me some timelines. What are the major players in here? Explain it to me like I'm five and I haven't been paying attention. Okay, I'll try to beat Kamala Harris. Russia's a big just kidding. Um, <laughs> so, for, okay, so you know the United States has a uh, a debt limit right now. It's thirty one point four trillion. We're actually above it because our national debt is thirty one point eight trillion. However, the Treasury Department has been able to move money around to keep paying the bills. Uh, the uh, Republicans passed a bill uh, about two weeks ago. It's saying that we will give another one point five trillion to the debt ceiling in uh, return for 
taking spending from 2023 levels back to 2022 levels. So it'd be like the, you know, tiny cut. And then they said that there would be 1% growth over the next decade on domestic spending. They also said that uh, we would uh, have to require uh, uh, work for uh, welfare programs, work requirements for able-bodied adults only, and that they would undo the 87,000, uh, 87,000, IRS, uh, you know, employees that, you know, Joe Biden put forth in the Inflation Reduction Act. So those are like, those are the big three things. And uh, Joe Biden has said, nope, I will not do any of those things. Give me a clean one point five trillion of new debt. And that is all I'm going to do. And uh, the squad is, you know, really, you know, holding him his feet to the fire in in, in order to uh, state, you know, stay uh, truthful to that you know position. And it seems like a lot of moderate Democrats are saying, guys, we have to, you know, we have to compromise here. So, you know, we're getting close to the stated deadline when uh, Treasury Secretary Yellen said that we're going to, quote, run out of money. However, just real quick, um, we've, you know, we've been here before many times and the federal government takes in lots and lots of money in revenue every single day. So there's always, always, always enough money to pay the bills that have to be paid. The national, the, the interest on the national debt, uh, Medicaid, Medicare, social security payments, military payments, and that kind of stuff. Really what would happen is if we do breach the debt ceiling, some of the very, very unnecessary, redundant, you know, government programs would be cut, but mm. they are trying to make it seem like that will cause an economic catastrophe and the entire, you know, U.S. economy is going to blow up in, you know, five days. That's not true. That is not true whatsoever. So I guess we'll see what yeah, happens. That, well, that's kind of interesting because, uh, you know, I've, I've had people in my family uh, uh, fearful that like Social Security was going to be disrupted because of this, you know, it's not true. Maybe they're going to be blaming one side more than the other when it comes to that. There's laws on the books that they uh, the, uh, Social Security is an automatic, uh, you know, it, it's on autopilot. And that means that the, the the Congress would have to pass a new law to, in order to make any changes to that. Mm. Now, Social Security is going to go bankrupt in 10 years. So I really hope that we, we do something about it now because people who are my age Don, and your age, Donnie, we're not going to be seeing the full Social Security benefits that we've been paying into the system. So it, it, I guess to make a really long, complicated story short, since 2000, we have not had a balanced budget. We've accumulated something like $20 trillion just in that period alone. We can't keep doing this. We're printing money at the wazoo in order to, you know, to keep our, our you know, house of cards economy from total collapse. We have to make some, some much needed spending cuts. We have to reform our entitlement programs. We have to, you know, just balance the budget once and for all. And uh, it's going to take a little bit of, you know, a little bit of pain, obviously, but you know what? If we don't do it now, every day we wait, literally every day we wait, it's just going to get harder and harder and harder. And they keep uh, kicking the can down the road. So, Jim, I want to come to you, but I have one more question for Chris, because when I when I decided that, you know, all right, let's let's do this story. I looked it up because I feel like we've seen this story a million times in the time that I've been paying attention. So I looked it up and uh, um, in my lifetime, the debt ceiling has been increased 33 times. So what makes this time special? Or is this just kind of like another one of these things? Or is there something special about this time? I think the only one that is really different about this time than any other in my recent memory is that you have a president who's just saying it's my way or the highway. Every mm -hmm. single other time, even during the Trump administration, we had to raise the debt ceiling multiple times. 
And it was just like, you know, th- like the adults were in the room and they said, OK, fine, we have to raise it. But let's, you know, compromise on both sides. So the Democrats in general like to spend money. The Republicans in general don't want to spend as much money. And every single time, you know, in, in the past, they have gotten to some sort of agreement. But now we're at a place where you've got uh, the the president's just saying, if you do not give me every single thing that I want, which is really just a 1.5 trillion increase with no strings attached to whatsoever, well, then I'm just going to take my ball and go home. And that's right. just not that's not how you govern. And that's not how adults, you know, uh, act. So I guess, you know, Joe Biden is, you know, just really testing the waters here and seeing if McCarthy is going to cave. But from what everything that I've seen McCarthy say and the House GOP, even though they've got a very slight majority in the House, they're holding they're holding together, which mm. is a great sign, I think. Yeah, it'll be uh, the, the one article that you briefly pulled up there, Jim, suggested that it was a June 1st deadline. So from your perspective, mm. Jim, thoughts on this uh, predictions, worst case scenario, best case scenario. What do you got? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, as Chris pointed out, how, how much how much currency digital currency it really is? I mean, it is a, I don't think they physically print it anymore. How many trillions of dollars did uh, Biden print up and put into the economy as stimulus uh, since he's been president? He's only been president for two, a little over two years. Uh, so w- when you see our government, our government is hopelessly fiscally irresponsible. Um, it, it seems like there are no policies. There's no even attempt to even talk about policies in place that would that would make economic sense, that would help strengthen this economy in, in relation to other economies around the globe. I mean, when you're, you're, if you don't know anything about the debt ceiling, the, the fact that we even have a debt ceiling and that it has to be uh, raised by uh, by uh, an act of the legislature, by the by an act of Congress, is an amazing thing, and it should, on its face, help uh, foster fiscal discipline. Has it? No, it hasn't. You know, so you look at this stuff and and from my perspective, and I used to cover Congress uh, back when I was at The Washington Times, gosh, almost 20 years ago now, the, uh, you know, these things, I think back then our national debt, what is it now? You said, Chris, uh, $31.8 trillion. Yeah. I think the national debt when I was, when I was covering Congress back in the day was at least half that, if not, if not even less than half that. Anyway, just so you see these things. And I think most American people. Their eyes glaze over. They don't pay attention because, one, they figure that most of the federal government is on autopilot. And that's actually the truth. We haven't mm-hmm. had uh, we haven't had a budget uh, that, that meant anything that came out of Congress or from the White House either in either direction that has meant anything. We haven't had a proper appropriations process through the Appropriations Committee in Congress. You know, the chairman of the Appropriations Committee in the House of Representatives, Re- House of Representatives used to be the most powerful and feared person in Washington. Today, what, what does it matter if you're the chairman of the Appropriations Committee? All, all that it really happens is that there's a continuing resolution and a promise to spend more money until we get to the next debt ceiling, and then we raise it and we keep going forward like that. Uh, so I, would, I, I love the idea that Kevin McCarthy wants to impose some sense of fiscal restraint on the federal government in exchange for raising the debt ceiling, which seems to be counterintuitive. Why would you need to raise the debt ceiling if you're going to control spending? But Put that put that aside. I love the idea of it. I don't think any of it's actually going to matter. Um, there will be a deal worked out, whether it's just past the deadline or just before the deadline. And 
profligate spending in Washington will just continue on as it always has. Uh, and uh, really nothing will ever really change. So, you, you know, the Social Security is not at risk. Medicaid, Medicare, not at risk. All that stuff will still happen. And then a year from now, two years from now, we'll see that the federal budget is bigger than it was before. The federal debt is even bigger than it was before. And really nothing ever really changes. Yeah, which is kind of why I'm kind of apathetic to this uh, to this topic. But uh, I don't know. Uh, I guess we'll see what happens. June 1st is what, Monday, Sunday, something like no, that? Like Tuesday of next week, I think. Tuesday of next week. There you go. So I guess we'll see what happens then. Maybe by next uh, podcast, you know, if we're not, uh, you know, witnessing the complete collapse of the dollar and the ushering in of a new CBDC and then sitting to take its place. But I don't know. That's neither here than there. But uh, Chris, any final thoughts on this? We're actually going to seemingly wrap up the show in the proper hour for the first time in like a month. I mean, I, I agree with Jim's assessment, but I, I do have, I think, a little bit more optimism here because I do think that we are at a point where the vast majority of the American people know that this debt is unsustainable. Uh, we're at, you know, we're, we're well above our national GDP. So we're, we're in like un, unknown territory. And if we don't do something soon, it's going to get really out of control and it's going to be a real, real, you know, pain upon the American people. So I hope that our leaders in Washington, DC, and I don't have much, you know, confidence and faith in Biden, but I do hope that they do come together and, pass something i do well chris filling that role is the hopeless optimist of the in the tank podcast and that'll be a good way to end it we should end with a little bit of optimism here and there so i want to thank everybody for joining the show join us every week for a new episode of the in the tank podcast for those audio only listeners that are catching this on a friday you can join us a day earlier on thursdays at noon central time where we are streaming on facebook and rumble and twitter and facebook and you can join in the conversation through your comments and questions in the chat maybe we'll show your comments on the screen maybe we'll address your questions on the fly we also have that super chat function enabled if you want to support the show that way and guarantee that your comment or question gets read during the broadcast if you are listening to the show leaving a review for us on itunes would be greatly appreciated if you are watching on youtube you can uh, hit that like button share this content subscribe if you haven't already or leave a comment all these things help break through the big tech algorithms to prevent content like this from being shown to more people if you'd like you can follow us on twitter at in the tank pod or you can send us your comments and questions to the show by emailing us at in the tank podcast at gmail.com jim lakely where can the fine people find you at Heartland Inst on Twitter, at Jay Lakely on Twitter, and always visit heartland.org. Fantastic. And Chris Talgo, what do you have to pitch today? Uh, heartland.org, obviously, we got a bunch of great stuff up there. But also, I just want to hope everybody has a great Memorial Day weekend. Don't worry about this stuff. The older I get, the more I realize that, you know what, it's about spending time with your friends and family. So go and do that. And, you know, just don't worry about this until Tuesday. <laughs> That's right. Eat eat a hamburger while you still can before they get turned into but, cricket. But don't burgers. use Heinz ketchup. <laughs> don't use no no hunts. Hunts or die. I'm That's hashtag hunts. hunts or die. All about hunts. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you all for tuning in. We will talk to you next week. <laughs>